DNA testing and laws have changed throughout the years in Ohio. In 2005, Ohio made a law requiring all felons to give a DNA sample. This law and DNA testing has helped solve some unsolved homicide cases in Ohio. I am Bill Swafford and this is Murderers in Ohio. So we got a killer on a run in Ohio. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Murderers in Ohio. I am continuing on with 88 counties of Murderers in Ohio. I am considering this episode for Franklin County, even though the murder trial was to happen in Madison County. I'm putting this under Franklin County because the victim and convicted murderer both lived in Franklin County. This case would lead investigators to North Carolina. Franklin County basically sits in the middle of the state of Ohio. Some of the cities in the county are Columbus, Grove City, Whitehall, and plus others. In this episode, I will be talking about the city of Columbus. Columbus is a big city. It is the state capital of Ohio. Columbus is the home of the Ohio State University and the Ohio State Buckeyes College football team. I will have to admit that I am an Ohio State Buckeye fan. I have been to Columbus a few times, once for a Buckeye football game, and three times to run the Ohio State four-mile marathon. So while I'm talking about this, just think of a big city kind of atmosphere. Columbus has quite a few unsolved homicide cases. This case I'm going to talk about in this episode has gone unsolved for 17 years. The improvements of DNA testing and the state laws helped solve this case. If not for DNA testing and a state law, this case probably would have never got solved and would have remained a cold case forever. Back in 1988, Jessica Keene, who was probably around 12 or 13 years old at the time, Her and her mom, Rebecca, moved from Kettering, Ohio, which is in Montgomery County, to Columbus. It's about an hour and a half to two hours drive between Kettering and Columbus. Jessica is white with long curly brown hair, an average size for a teenage girl. Jessica would soon attend Westlake High School where she would be on the honor roll and become a cheerleader. Things were actually looking good for young Jessica. That would all change, though. Everyone said things were going good for Jessica till early in the year of 1991. This is when Jessica fell in love with an 18-year-old high school dropout named Sean Thompson. Jessica was only 15 years old at the time. This is definitely not what a parent wants for their young daughter. It is said that Jessica's grades started to drop. She even quit cheerleading. Jessica had some small troubles with the law, and she started getting arguments with her mom. In March of 1991, Rebecca, Jessica's mom, put Jessica into a group home for troubled teens called the Huckberry House. When a parent places a child into a place like this, they do it for one or two reasons. 
First, they really do believe that the place can help out the child. Or they do it because they can't deal with the child anymore. It is hard to say what Rebecca was feeling at this time about her daughter's new attitude. In my experience, some of the teen group homes make the teenagers worse. Because as a parent, you are putting your teen in with other troubled teens who aren't always supervised in the best way. I have found both good and bad reviews on the Huckleberry House. One of the bad reviews said that the staff doesn't care what they are going through and would send the kids back to a bad situation if they could. The place is a brown brick three-story home, almost mansion size. There is a front and a back entrance. On the back of the place there is a set of black cast iron steps that lead up the second level. The Huckleberry House sits on the corner of East 8th Avenue and Hamlet Street. Jessica was not supposed to be at the Huckleberry House for a long period of time. Rebecca took Jessica to the Huckleberry House on March 4th of 1991. The group home offered free assistance to Rebecca and Jessica. Jessica was to stay at the Huckleberry House for two weeks. So Jessica should have gone home on the 17th through the 19th of March of 1991. On the day of March 16th, Jessica had been on the phone with Sean at some point during the day. The staff and some other people there at the house had noticed Jessica visibly upset after the phone call. Jessica said she was going to the mall and left the group home. This is where I have a couple of problems. The group home should have never let a 15-year-old girl be on a phone with an 18 year old guy who had done messed up her life. He's 18, she's 15. She should have never been on a phone with him. This was back when cell phones were not widely available. This call would have been made on a landline phone from the Huckleberry house. My second problem with this is that the staff members noticed that she was upset. So why didn't the staff have Jessica stay at the house till she had calmed down? Or why didn't a staff member go with Jessica? Remember, this is a group home for troubled teenagers. That Saturday would go on and Jessica would never return to the Huckleberry house. Later on in the evening on that Saturday, a staff member would call Rebecca, Jessica's mom to let Rebecca know that Jessica never had come back to the group home. Rebecca then called law enforcement and reported that Jessica was missing. Law enforcement would start looking for 15-year-old Jessica Keene. This is a worst nightmare situation for any parent. A child gone missing. On March 18th of 1991, someone was visiting a cemetery in Madison County. Madison County is the next county over on the west side of Franklin County. Foster Chapel Cemetery is about 20 miles from the Huckleberry House, outside of a town called West Jefferson. This area is more of a rural area 
No big city feeling to it. There's not many houses around the cemetery. Just some old farmhouses. So, on the 18th of March, someone was visiting the cemetery and discovered something horrible. 15-year-old Jessica King's body was found inside of Foster Chapel Cemetery. How did Jessica end up at the cemetery 20 miles from where she was staying? Law enforcement would learn that Jessica had been beaten, raped, and then hit over the head with something. Jessica had been murdered, but by who? Law enforcement would zero in on Jessica's 18-year-old boyfriend, Sean Thompson. There would be a couple of good reasons for that. One, there was the phone argument between Jessica and Sean. The second reason would be because of what was not found on Jessica's body. Law enforcement knew that Sean had given Jessica a necklace. Now a ring, a watch, bra, and a sock was the only things that were left on Jessica's body. Law enforcement would talk to 18-year-old Sean Thompson. However, this would lead to nothing. Sean was not even in the state of Ohio at the time. Sean had been on a trip down in Florida. Sean did give a DNA sample. Sean's DNA was not a match for what was found at the crime scene. So, what did law enforcement know about what happened to 15-year-old Jessica Keene? Law enforcement had gotten a report by a witness who believes that they had seen Jessica at a bus stop around 6 p.m. on March 16th. Law enforcement believes that Jessica was held captive in a vehicle while she was beaten and raped. Then Jessica had somehow escaped and ran into the cemetery where her attacker had caught up with her and murdered her. Law enforcement would find one of Jessica's socks in the road. There were footprints in the mud. They also found pieces of discarded duct tape. They also had some DNA evidence, but nothing to compare it to. The investigation into Jessica's keen murder would go cold. Jessica's murder would be shown on the TV shows The On the Case and Unsolved Mysteries. Jessica's case would go unsolved for 17 years. No one knew anyone who could have possibly wanted to hurt Jessica Keene. The science behind DNA testing has improved throughout the years. As long as DNA samples are preserved correctly, that sample can lie for many years. Science and testing are not the only things that have changed with DNA. A law has been put in place in Ohio requiring all felony offenders who enter into the prison system to give a DNA sample. This was done that way samples that are collected can be run across DNA samples from unsolved cases. DNA has helped solve unsolved cases and helped get some innocent people free. DNA would help out in the Jessica Keene investigation. In April of 2008, a Madison County investigator and an investigator from the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation 
took a trip to Burlington, North Carolina. They had found a match for DNA that was collected in the Jessica Keene investigation. Investigators were in North Carolina to arrest and charge 52-year-old Marvin Lee Smith Jr., a black man, for the 1991 murder of 15-year-old Jessica Keene. Marvin Smith would be extradited to Madison County in Ohio to stand trial and face the death penalty for the murder of Jessica. So how did DNA lead law enforcement to 52-year-old Marvin Smith Jr. in North Carolina? Marvin had actually lived in Columbus back in 1991. It is not clear how long Marvin lived in Ohio. In 1991, Marvin was out on bond. Marvin was facing charges for sexual assault on two women. He would be sentenced to serve nine years in an Ohio state prison. Marvin was a sex offender. Law enforcement did not think about even considering Marvin a suspect at that time. In the year of 2000, Marvin would be released from prison on parole. It would be part of his parole that he would give a DNA sample. That way it could be put on the prison database for felony offenders and sexual offenders. It would take five years for Marvin's DNA to be compared to the DNA that was found at the Jessica King crime scene. To avoid the death penalty, Marvin pled guilty and told the investigators what had happened to 15-year-old Jessica on March 16th of 1991. While Marvin was out on bond waiting to be sentenced for his other two sexual assaults, Marvin abducted Jessica from a bus stop near the Wendland Park area. This would be in the same area of the Huckleberry House. Marvin at some point had taken Jessica to West Jefferson in Madison County and out near the cemetery. While parked on a backcountry road, Jessica had managed to get out of the vehicle somehow and had taken off running. Jessica had ran through a ditch, a field, and then into the Foster Chapel Cemetery. It was dark out. Marvin believes Jessica had seen lights from a nearby farmhouse and she had taken off running towards the farmhouse. It was dark and wasn't very many lights out so it was hard for Jessica to see and Jessica had ran into a fence post and fell to the ground. That is when Marvin had caught up with her. Marvin said that he had picked up a 70-pound tombstone and slammed it down onto Jessica's head. He said he had slammed it down so hard that the tombstone had split into two pieces. Marvin had then thrown the tombstone over the fence and then had fled the scene. Marvin was 35 years old when he had raped and murdered 15-year-old Jessica Keene. In 2009, while in his early 50s, Marvin got 30 years to life in prison. He won't be eligible for parole till 2038. Marvin Smith would be sent to Lebanon Correctional Institution in Warren County.
if Marvin Smith Jr. would have never given a DNA sample, this case probably would have never got solved. Marvin was never looked at as a suspect back in 1991. DNA testing had brought justice to Jessica Keene and her family. Thankfully, the cold case investigators never gave up on Jessica Keene's case. some time left in this episode so I'm going to talk about another county and another case for 88 counties of murderers in Ohio. I'm going to talk about a case of a cop killer from Ross County. If you have listened to most of the episodes that are on murderers in Ohio you will have heard me talk about Ross County before. Not about any case but because that that is where Ross Correctional and Chillicothe Correctional Institutions are located. Both prisons are in Chillicothe, which is in Ross County. Male death row inmates are housed at Chillicothe Correctional to wait for their sentence to be carried out. This is also a case that once you have a killer in jail waiting for trial, you must make sure to keep that killer in jail. Ross County is two counties north of the Kentucky state line and it is south of Columbus. Ross County actually sits on the northern border of Pike County. Ross County is not like Franklin County, which I just talked about with Martin Smith Jr. This county has more hills and wooded areas. I'm going to talk about the city of Chillicothe. Chillicothe is a decent-sized city, but not nearly as big as Columbus. On April 21st of 2005, the Chillicothe Police Department got a report of a car being stolen from a restaurant. I don't know how long it would take for the Chillicothe Police to show up at the restaurant to take this report. I figure an officer might have been on the scene taking a report on the stolen vehicle when another call would come into the police department. 15 minutes after the call about a vehicle being stolen, the Chillicothe police got another call about an armed robbery at a gas station. The suspect had a mask on, so they couldn't tell who it was. But... They got a description of the vehicle, and the vehicle that the robber was driving was the vehicle that had just got stolen from the restaurant. A Chillicothe police officer and his cruiser would catch up to the vehicle, and a chase would begin. After being chased by the police for a few minutes, the suspect bailed out of the car and then took off on foot. The suspect was 34-year-old John Parsons from Chillicothe. John is a white male with dark hair and some facial hair. John has tattoos on the back of his neck, tattoo on his right shoulder and left leg. John is 5'10 and around 180 pounds. At some point after avoiding being arrested, John had gone to his mom's house. John would stay there till around 10 in the evening 
and then John would leave his mom's house and start walking to his own place. Now, an off-duty Chillicothe police officer, Larry Cox, was having dinner with his parents. As Larry was leaving his parents' house, he noticed that John Parsons was out walking the streets. Larry would take off on foot chasing John Parsons. I do have a question here. How did Larry recognize John and how did he know John was wanted for the gas station robbery? Had Larry dealt with John before this? Also, did Larry, an off-duty police officer, have a firearm on him? John Parsons just did an armed robbery, so he would more than likely be armed unless he ditched his gun. I believe that Larry should have waited for backup. The foot chase would go into an alleyway near Chestnut and North High Street. This is where John would pull out a gun and shoot Larry Cox in the neck. John would once again get away from the police. Officer Larry Cox would die from his gunshot wound. I would like to know why John pulled the trigger on an off-duty police officer. This is where I have to ask again, did John know Larry Cox? Did Officer Cox ever arrest John Parsons? John had gone from being wanted for armed robbery and auto theft to be hunted down for the murder of a Chillicothe police officer. John was now facing capital murder charges. If caught in charge, John would face the death penalty. It would take several months and clues for the police to find and arrest John Parsons on July 10, 2005. John would be charged with capital murder, armed robbery, and auto theft. John would remain locked up while he waited for his day in court. Murder trials always seem to get delayed for some reason over anything. This would be no different for John's trial. John was still being held in custody awaiting trial in early 2006. On July 29, 2006, John Parsons escaped from the Ross County Jail. It was John's last attempt for freedom. It is said that John had asked his mom for help, but before any escape plans could be made with her, police arrested John's mom. Even without John's mom's help, John had made it out of the Ross County Jail. Inmates, whether they are in the county or in prison, have a lot of time on their hands. And they can make some crazy things out of anything. So this is part of how John escaped from the Ross County Jail. I figured that he had gone out his second story window or something. This is why I think that John had made a rope out of bedsheets, newspapers, and toilet paper. I honestly don't know how someone would make a rope that way. Now an inmate is not allowed to have any kind of rope in their cell. So there would have to be a place to hide this rope. John used a piece of metal from an air vent to carve out the mortar around a broken brick. He then stuffed the rope behind the wall 
put the brick back, took toothpaste to replace the missing mortar. He then took blue and green Jolly Ranchers, mixed that with toothpaste, that way the collar would match the walls. John's escape would actually be featured on a show called Breakouts. The TV show Breakouts was not the only TV show that John was featured on. He was also featured on America's Most Wanted twice. Then the FBI would put John Parsons on their list as the 484th Most Wanted Fugitive that the FBI was looking for. That is when John would be featured for the third time on America's Most Wanted. A $100,000 reward would be put up for any tips that would lead to the arrest and conviction of John Parsons. There were a lot of reports made of people seeing John in heavily wooded areas in Chillicothe. John would go on the run for three months. He had to have gotten help from somebody. A man by the name of Orlando Crockett was arrested for aiding John. However, the charges were dropped. John's mom was charged with obstruction of justice. John Parsons at this time was wanted by law enforcement for unlawful flight to avoid prosecution, escape, capital murder, aggravated robbery, and grand theft auto. On October 19th of 2006, John Parsons would be arrested by the Ross County Tactical Assault Team without any problems. John was in a shack near the Chilcothy city limits. The arrest was made at 12.20 in the afternoon. John would be booked in the Ross County Jail, but transferred to Pickaway Correctional Institution in Orient, Ohio, southwest of Columbus. John Parsons pled guilty in a Ross County court and got life sentence without parole. Thank you for joining me for this episode. I am Bill Swafford and this has been Murderers in Ohio. If you are interested in checking out another true crime podcast hosted by me, Bill Swafford, then please check out Cold Ohio on Spotify, Google, Apple, iHeartRadio, and wherever you get your podcast. Cold Ohio is where I talk about cold cases from all over Ohio for about 10 or 15 minutes, so it doesn't take up all your day. So please check out Cold Ohio on Spotify, Google, Apple, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcast. We got the devil on the run at Ohio.